The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash the Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today using squarespace.com. Use the promo code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is a buddy and X, and this is The Candid Frame. The reason why most people pick up a camera is to document the important moments of their lives. Whether it's the birth of a child, a wedding, a vacation, or even just those small, intimate moments that we want to remember, a camera immortalizes those memories. But the camera can also be used to express something about how we're experiencing our own lives. Because sometimes the power of photography lies in its ability to connect us, to make us realize that we are more alike than we are different. And that can be especially the case when it comes to moments that are filled with sadness and grief. For photographer Andre Pendeado, the death of his father by suicide was just such a moment. The aftermath and the palpable loss of his father sparked him to pick up a camera not only as a way of contending with his own grief, but a way of connecting to others who have suffered a similar loss. Though work like this can never eliminate the pain and the sorrow felt by survivors of suicide, it goes a long way to remind us that we are never truly alone. Well, Andre, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You're the first photographer, I think, that I've interviewed from Brazil. So that's one of the exciting things about the show is that I have the opportunity to to interview photographers from all over the world. But tell me, did you grow up in in Brazil? Yes, I did. Uh, I was born in Sao Paulo in 1970. I grew up in the Bahia State on the coast of Brazil. Uh, I lived there as a child. And then I, I moved back to Sao Paulo and I lived here until 2005 when I moved to London, where I lived for seven years. In 2012, I relocated to Sao Paulo. Did your interest in photography begin while you were still in Brazil? Yes, yes, it did. Uh, my family, they were my, my father and my auntie, they were both uh, good amateur photographers. They had like nice cameras. And my family had a long story photography with very old family albums, you know, things from, there's even pictures from the 19th century. So I grew up among all these images and with these people taking photographs. And I did my first photography course with what would be something like black and white photography level one <laughs> in 1989. And then from there on, I took loads of pictures and I became a professional photographer. I became first an assistant in 1993-94 and a professional photographer in 98. And from that onwards, I've been doing just my own photography. What, what area of photography first interest, interested you and how did you segue that into the, the career that you have now? 
Until being an assistant, I just did everything. I just was taking pictures of my daily life. You know, I didn't have any special project or anything like that. And I was an assistant in a commercial, in the largest commercial studio in Latin America at that time. What means that I assisted people doing cars, fashion, steel life and everything. And then I became a commercial photographer. I did a lot of uh, magazine work like portraits and lifestyle, a little bit of steel life. And then I also did a lot of like photography for companies. They're just doing some little bit of advertising and also some events and things like that. And I also even did some weddings. You know, the things you do when you're starting to make some money, to be able to survive as a photographer, to mm-hmm. make a living from it. Then I did kind of everything. What was really good to, to give me a lot of understanding of the medium and how to be fast sometimes shooting or how to properly lead a scene or something like that. Uh, from 98 to 2005, I had this commercial career and I also started developing some kind of personal projects, more structured ones, you know, thinking about a concept and doing some and producing it. But I still wasn't able to invest a lot of my time in this kind of photography. From 2011 onwards, I was able to just concentrate on my personal photography. I got a bursary and that changed everything because then suddenly I didn't need to do any commercial photography and I was able to just think about my projects and do and develop other new projects, finish older projects that weren't like halfway done. And that's what I've been doing so far. So since I came back to Brazil, I also producing new projects and I'm not doing commercial photography any longer. What led you to move to London? Well, uh, exactly because I wanted to stop doing commercial photography. I understood at that time in 2005 that I wasn't happy with the kind of photography I was doing, even though I always had fun shooting anything, you know, just if I was doing like a fashion shoot or a portrait, I always had a lot of fun doing that. But I realized my heart wasn't there, you know, I said, that's not what I want. And even though I've been doing photography for so long, and I learned assisting and I'm self-taught because I went to business school. My degree is on business. So I kind of self-taught and I thought, you know what? I have to move. I have to leave Brazil, go somewhere, see more art, you know, get in touch with the things I like, with contemporary art and everything. So my wife, my ex-wife now, my, my wife at the time, she also wanted to change careers. She used to be a journalist. And so she... Uh, we went to London when she got a bursary to do a master's there. And then that everything came together. Both of us went into change careers, you know, changing what was happening in our lives. And then we just went there. You know, being a photographer is always a challenge regardless of where you are. But moving to a, a different country, especially one that has a different culture, a different language, can be a real challenge. Talk mm-hmm. to us about about that transition and how you know how that was for you in terms of trying to sort of continue your career in a, in a completely different location. I have to say that I was really naive. You know, <laughs> I just I had this. I always shot in Brazil with this kind of very raw style. If you think about Terry Richardson, without all the sex 
or, or you can tell her, oh, it's shot like with point and shoot cameras or straight flash photography. I do a lot of straight flash until today. So I have this kind of trendy portfolio that I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to the land where it all happened. You know, I'm going to take this there and I'm going to be the new thing from Brazil and they're going to like me, you know. <laughs> and then I got there and start making phone calls. I, I got there and I went to the Association of Photographers for a talk about portfolios. They showed my portfolios, got some advice. I even bought a database of, of publishers and, and art directors. And then I printed the A, uh, A5 postcards and I said, I sent a hundred out and I hope things will happen, you know. Kind of, they didn't the way I expected. The good thing is I had some savings that helped me in the beginning of my journey there. But uh, then I started doing some shoots in London for Brazil. I kept my contacts with Brazilian magazines, so they always need someone in Europe, you know. So I did a cover for a magazine in Ger- a magazine from Brazil in Germany of a businesswoman, and then I did loads of portraits for Brazilian magazines of people or things that were happening in London, and I kind of survived on that. Uh, I even again shot one wedding for a friend, you know, to make some money. It's the way I like to tell people about the things without glamorizing the profession, you know, saying I don't do this, I don't do that. My main goal in London is that I won't do anything but photography. Because I had a career in Brazil, I say, you know, I'm going to go to London. I, I wasn't that young, you see. Uh, I was born in 1970. I moved to London. I was already 35 making a living from photography in Brazil. So I say, I'm going to go there, let's see what happens. And my first, our plan was to stay there for just a year, you know. But then a year turned into two and three and four and five and six and seven, you know. And after, after a year, I made some contacts there. So I got some corporate jobs, you know, some events. And then sometime later, I shot one big advertising job that gave me some money. You know, through someone who's doing corporate events, uh, 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 an advertising job landed on my lap, you know, just like, we like your style. We want a code for this. You know, it was a really good job. And I got that. That made me through several months. And that's what I even shot for a portrait studio, you know, at a certain time. It was really hard. I got a job shooting, like, regular women that they would invite in the streets to have their book done, you know. And I'll shoot for them. And that's it. I just kept my rule about not doing anything. And that happened until I got this bursary from Brazil. From, uh, that helped me just stopping doing all of this and then concentrating on my work. I think it's very important that we keep in contact with like bursaries and people that fund artists as a way to find other ways to fund our projects. What was the difference in the culture of, of photographers uh, in Brazil as compared to London? What, was, what were some of the more difficult things to get used to socially? Well, I think the first thing is that in a more developed market like uh, London and probably in the U.S., people are more specialized than Brazil, you know? So when I say here, sometimes you do lifestyle, then you do fashion, and then you do still life, you know? Maybe. So I did some food photography for very good magazines here while shooting portraits for another magazine. And uh, I, I, when I got to London, I understood the matter of 
been spe specialized in one field of photography and also with one very clear style of how you shoot things. That was the main difference because here sometimes, you know, our directors invite you to come with your book and you show up everything you like doing, they say, oh, we love your style, but then can you shoot something in this other style? Because we like you. Mm -hmm. And then you think, well, but I shoot the other style. No, just, why are you asking me that? But then you have to make ends meet and you have to make money and then say, oh, of course I can do that. So first thing was to learn and to tailor my portfolio to a market like that. The other thing that was really tough was language, you know, because the way we communicate is very different. Even, even though personal distance, if you're talking to someone, I remember going to this association of photographers meeting and then going to talk to this guy who gave the talk and going maybe a little bit too close to him and he would step back, you know, and I was trying to understand what's going on here. I just like want to talk to him, you know, and he would give a step back until he understood right. Brazilians, we are very friendly. We get close to people. We touch people, you know, we just, and in London, I cannot do that. The other thing is to learn to deal with things like calling a magazine and the guy is saying, you know, I don't know how things are in the US, but here, if you call someone, they might, they are likely to, to have a meeting with you. You know, if they see your portfolio online and they like it, they say, yeah, come over, bring your book, let's meet. You know, let's meet up, let's have a, a chat. And in London, you kind of call them, you first send your cards and then you email them and then you might call them and they say, yeah, well, I cannot find your email. Please send me your, the link for your website again. And you do. And then you give me a couple of weeks, give them a couple of weeks. And then you call again and they say, great. I love your work. Uh, get in touch again in six months and then maybe we can arrange to meet. And they're like, oh, right. I don't have six months, you know, and that happened quite often. I think, I don't know. I wasn't from there. I didn't have a degree in a good college from there, a good photography school, whatever, MA, MFA, whatever. So I thought, you know, there are already too many people in the market there. So it was really tough to break into, you know. And what happened to me, the, all the good jobs I got in the end, I got through people I met in parties, you know, having beer in the pub, you know, friends of friends, people they used to work in ad agencies or magazines, they're like, ah, oh, you're a great guy, come, let me sh show me your work. Much more than using all the strategy that the guy explained to me in that first talk I went about sending postcards and, and emails and all of that. The work that brought you to my attention revolves around a series that you've been doing on suicide. And uh, mm -hmm. part of that was inspired by the death of your father who committed suicide, which led you to go back yeah. to Brazil because you'd been working in London. Can you tell us about th those events? Yeah, well, my, my father took his own life in January 2007. So I'd been in London for just one year something. So I went after everything happened, I went back to London and I lived there another six years. My, my father had a history of depression and he had mentioned the possibility of committing suicide while he was 40-something in the 70s. That's something that happened before and also his sister had committed suicide also in the early 70s. So there's a family history on his side of depression. When I was living, I had been there in London for one year and he got into a very strong depression and had been mentioning again that he was very unhappy with his life. He wasn't happy like that. And what had happened and he lost all his money. He did some bad business 
and he went bankrupt, something that happens a lot, you know. And we were talking to him, you know, are we going to get around that, you know, be strong, all the things you try to say. I, I didn't have any experience in situations like that. So one thing everybody does is trying to convince the person that he or she is not right. The way they're seeing the situation is not right. But what happens with depression is that people, they're not in the same place we are, you know. And actually telling them that they're not right is not actually the best thing to do. The best thing to do is just to listen to people. Just let them talk whatever they need to talk. And we don't try to rationalize what they're saying because they are in this strange place, right? But then one day I was in my place in London, phone rang. My father, ex-father-in-law called, spoke to my wife and gave the news. Broke up the news. My father had passed away. First, he didn't say anything about suicide. There was a real shock. And at the moment I got the news, for some reason, because I was far away, there was nothing else I could do, I, I got my camera, film camera, loaded it with black and white film and took a picture of the lamp on my living room for some reason. And then I started taking some pictures. I went out of my flat, I took some pictures of my flat, and then half an hour later my sister came and then told me my father had committed suicide as a second shock. And, well, I took my pictures, I... we book flight for next morning to come to Brazil. I flew and I went direct from the airport to uh, the funeral parlor. In Brazil, things probably are different than in, in the US. People, if people die one day, we have just next day in the funeral parlor, just one day and they are buried next day, the day after. It's mm-hmm. like a two day thing. It doesn't take a week or times, you know. And we always have like an open coffin and people go there and see the body and touch the body if they want, you know. But the body is in the middle of this room where everybody is. So I went straight from the airport there, met all my friends and my family. Quite shocking to see everyone in that situation. Then after a few hours, everybody left. I stayed with my father there, took my camera, just me and him took some less portraits of him. As I, you know, when something like that happens, I think our minds splits in two, you know. One is very sad, crying, really in a terrible place. The other half of it is rationalizing everything that's happening. You know, I have to organize everything. I have to do something. I have to take care of my mom. I have to talk to the funeral people. You know, I have to talk to the cemetery. You know, things like that. You have to do the organized things. So I had my mind in these two situations. You know, one like, oh my God, look, this is my dad. He's in the coffin. What happened? You know, how can I deal with that? The other one is like, well, right, I don't know, I need to do something with my life, I need to do something here. And then I took these pictures, and I took pictures until we buried the the body next day, you know, we buried him next day. And then I took these four rolls of black and white film and left them there. Uh, My father lived in a rented flat, what meant that we had to clear the flat next week. And then I went there, I had a desire to photograph everything he had. I had this you know, one year without touching him, talking to him, this is the last of his stuff. But there was too much stuff. There was no time to do that. We just packed everything he took and cleared the flats. A few days later, I decided to try some of his clothes. And when I put one of his shirts, the shirt had his scent, you know, the scent of his mm-hmm. aftershave that he had used his whole life. And I looked at it and there was a gray hair, you know, on the shoulder of it. And I say, well... This is 
the last time and the last way I have to hug my daddy, you know? I'm somehow touching him again for the last time. And then I, I just, the, the idea just came to me, you know what? I'm going to take all his clothes to his studio and I'm going to photograph myself wearing them. Because I did that for one photograph when I was a child. There was in the family album, there's this photograph of myself wearing my father's clothes. They were really big. I was like four, four or five. You know, I think that's something children do everywhere, right? Sometimes we put our father's shoes, you know, and, and trousers, a big jacket. And then I took all the clothes to what used to be my old studio. I had a studio that I shared with another photographer and he was still there. So I went to the studio with this idea. I asked another friend to go with me to help me in the process. And then I just did two tests. I test a white background and a gray background. And I test like a soft box and a ring flash. And it came to me, it's gray. And the ring flash, because of this little halo that creates, you know, the shadow that goes around the body, you see, that makes sense for this. I don't know what I'm doing, but that's, that's it. And then I did half of the portraits. I randomly picked up the clothes, you know, just like, and I try these trousers with this shirt and these shoes and these underwear and his necklace and his watch. And I was trying everything. I did uh, half of it with my eyes closed. And then it came to me again, like, like that, you know what, I have to do it with my eyes shut. And I redid everything I had done until the moment, and then I did to the end. When I finished the process, there were a lot of, all the hangers were on the floor. I just took the clothes off the hangers and threw them there, and I said, you know what, these empty hangers mean something as well. And then I photographed all of them with the ring flash on a white background this time. Did that, didn't do anything with all this material, went back to London, started living there again, uh, looking for jobs, going out, meeting my friends, you know, surviving what was happening, went back to psychoanalysis, something that I had done in my life previous times, you know, and so, you know, I have to have help to deal with all of that, that I lost my father, you know. Because losing your father is something that is such a strong thing to happen, you know. It's the people, they always been there, you know, and then suddenly he's not there, and then it changes your life. Life will never be the same again without him, you know. And then I start doing this and doing this, and after, I don't know, one half year, two years, I started showing this to some people, and people said, you know what, there's some... Thing powerful in what you did. It's not usual. It's not common. I haven't seen anything like that. Maybe you should consider showing it to the world. And so like, mm, yeah, let's see. And then I, I submitted it to an open kind of portfolio review that happened at the Photographer's Gallery in London. It was a day where you, you could submit your work and then you're going to go there and present it to an audience and then discuss with one of the curators there. So I submitted it and it was accepted. So I went there and showed the, the, the self-portraits and there was a very strong response to it, a good response. You know, there was people were like, wow, this is very powerful. This talks about a lot of things in life, you know, and about your love for him and your connection as a family and losing someone to suicide, such a taboo. And then maybe the subject should be more in the open, you know, maybe should show this. And then I start and then I went back to the black and white photographs and made an edit of it. And then I started attending some portfolio reviews and things and showing this. 
you know. In the meantime, even though I was going to therapy, it wasn't working this time, you know. The loss I had was too big, losing my father to suicide was too big, and just me talking about it wasn't enough. So one day I sat at home and I Googled support group for people who lost someone to suicide. And then a group called SOBS, Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide, show up in Google and was close to where I used to live in London and say, you know what, I'm going to go there, I'm going to attend this and see what's all about. I went there first night, it's a back room of a church, like around, I don't know, 25 people sitting on a circle and two people who were, three people, they were the organizers, but they weren't therapists, counselors or anything like that. They were just regular people, they were running this group to help people in the same situation. They were all people that had lost someone to suicide. I sat there, I didn't say anything, but the only thing they asked in the beginning, please tell your name, who you lost and how long, for, and how long ago that happened. And I said, my name is André, I lost my father, José Otávio, around two years ago. And then they went around the circle, I didn't say anything else that night, but then people start telling their own stories and ask questions. You know, someone said, I lost my son a month ago, and I've gone through this and that, and I don't know how to deal with that. Can anyone give me some advice? And then when I listened to all those stories, I suddenly felt that I belonged to the world again. You know, I said, you know what? Wow, I'm not alone. My story is not unusual. Lots of people with the same kind of problem and situations. And then I start going there every month. And after a few months, I said, you know what? I gonna, I'm gonna, I will produce a project with these people. I'm gonna produce some work to talk about the loss all of us had. With the blackout of numerous internet services last week due to a massive denial of service attack and the hacking of private emails, we've all become aware of how vulnerable we are in this age of technology. It's not only inconvenient, but it can hurt your bottom line if your business relies on an online presence. So you can't take it for granted that your website or blog is protected. Squarespace is doing its part to keep your website safe by using Secure Sockets Layer, or SSL, a technology that secures the connection between your browser and the website you're visiting. It allows you and your website visitors to feel confident that their information is secure, and it's an important part of your online identity. Every Squarespace website can enable SSL now, which will automatically direct users and search engines to a secure version of that site. The result is that millions of more domains on the internet will be secured via SSL, so you can have confidence that you and your customers' valuable information is protected. Start your free trial today with no credit card required. Visit squarespace.com, and when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure use the offer code Candid Frame to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Before we get into that, 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 that project that it segued in, lo- losing your parent is always a, a very difficult thing. But even more so when you're losing the suicide. Because mm-hmm. it, gives, it gives rise not only to feelings of just loss and grief, 
but it can also lead to feelings of guilt, mm-hmm. anger, um, shame. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, you know, photographing yourself in his clothes and then later on with this project you're about to tell us about, how did that help you deal with those with those feelings? Because I think that's a big part of losing mm-hmm. someone to suicide is not just the grief of their loss, but all these other strong feelings that you can have, you can struggle to, to contend yeah. with and accept that you're feeling yeah. as a result of what they chose to do. Yeah, the thing, I think it's really complicated, isn't it? Because you feel a lot of guilt and you also feel anger towards the person who killed herself, you know? And it's usually someone you love because you first you think you should have done something to avoid it happening. And, and after you think, why did they do it to us? You know, why? Why doing this? You know, I have to say that uh, the first project, the Dead Suicide, which is it's comprised by the, uh, the photos of the funeral and the self-portraits wearing his clothes and the hangers and also a group of photographs, a selection of the photographs I did with my point-and-shoot camera in the years after, that kind of show in the state I was. They're all just a series of broken things, run-down things, you know, empty spaces. I have to say that I did all of this. Not not in a way of doing some kind of auto-self-analysis or, or therapy. I just did what I had to do. The, the ideas just came to my mind as, a, as an artist. I say, I'm going to do this. The way I understand all of this now is that I was able somehow, because the project got some, kind of launched my career somehow, you know, it, just, it was such a strong thing that made lots of people aware of that. And I have the feeling now that I was able to to transform something really bad that my father left to me in something really good that he gave to me, you know, to be able to, so just for you to have an idea, tomorrow I'm giving a talk in a, in a symposium for psychologists in the university in Sao Paulo presenting my work to people who deal with grief. So I've published two books and the books are used now by psychologists dealing with people, dealing with grief and suicide and all of that and the impact of that in their families, right? So I, I understood in the end that the best thing I could do is kind of to change what happened from something really bad in something that makes good to the world, you know, and helps people. Instead of feeling just guilty and anger, that became a work of art that's there in the world for people to see and use the way they want, you know? So I think that's the most important thing. And during the days, just doing something was important for me. You know, just, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the clothes to the studio and I'm going to work this out somehow. I've always had this feeling, even though I've never had depression. So this is something that is on my father's side of the family. And I know I think we are lucky. We are four brothers, like two brothers and two sisters. None of us has depression. It's something that is in my father's side, but hasn't affected the rest of us. But I always thought after that, through the, some tough moments in life and other things that happens, you know, just like divorce, other family issues and things like that, the most important thing for me was, has always been not to stop, you know, not to feel paralyzed by the problems that happen, but to turn things into something else. And I think that's what happened with these projects. And as you were, as you were about to say, you started photographing other people who had lost their 
uh, yeah. their their loved ones. Tell us about the, that project. Yeah, the first project I thought was too personal. You know, something that just I could do and it was my answer to what happens. But then listened to other people's stories in the support group and the students say, right, there's the other ways of dealing with things and people have different feelings about suicide and all of that. So I'm going to invite people to create something together with me. You know? And then I invite a lot of people. A lot of people said no. And in the end, around 20, 20 25 people said yes. And then I, I didn't have a clear idea in the beginning of the project. So I did several things that I didn't use in the end. But I ended uh, with a series, two series of photographs and uh, one uh, video, three series of photographs and one video work. Right, so everything was shot in the place where these people that I met in the group lived, and I did one headshot. One headshot of all of them. It's just a straight headshot. It's just that. Look at the camera, and no, that's it. And then I did another two series that are a little bit more complicated to explain. But one is called emptiness and the other one is called memories. I was trying to understand through this work how we deal with the loss or the feelings, how can I communicate the feeling of loss and emptiness that we all shared after the loss we had, and also how we keep our memories, where we keep memories, how we deal with memories and a memory of something like that. So one of the things I did is uh, was a series of of portraits of these people standing in the middle of their living room. And for this portrait, I asked them to hold someone that belonged to the person who had passed away. Trying to connect this with the self-portraits I did of myself wearing my father's clothes in the same kind of pose. But that didn't work. But doing this, at certain points with one of the subjects, I said, you know what, can you just... I did the portrait and I said, can you leave the frame? And when, when this person left the frame, because I had framed the portrait to have someone there, and I it shot just the background of the frame, I was looking at this image after, after I developed the film, and I said, wow, there's something in this image that means a lot, because I feel an emptiness here. You know, there's something missing in this photograph. And then I start doing this with all the other people, you know, so frame a portrait and ask people to leave the frame and then photograph in just the background. But the whole photograph is composed to have someone there. So that became the, the, the series Emptiness. Because I was asking them to show me and to hold something that belonged to the person who passed away, I said, you know what, tell me now, not, I don't want to photograph the object itself, but tell me where you keep the, the object. Where do you keep this that's the most pre precious object that you kept that belonged to the person who passed away? And they say, oh, I keep it here, or I keep it inside these drawers, or I keep it in this shelf, or I keep it in my living room. And then I would, uh, I would go there and photograph the place. So many times the object is visible, if it's just a CD, or it's even a death certificate in a notice board, you know, in someone's bedroom. But sometimes they are not visible. It's a photograph inside an album, you know, is is a hat inside a drawer. And with time, I developed this work. The work is actually the photograph with the word, which is the title of the photograph printed on it, under the image. You know, I have a large white border on the bottom of the print, and they have the words there. So there will be 
shoehorn, pen knife, nightingale, photographs, things like that. Or there'll be in the emptiness series the relationship to the person who passed away. So that would be mother, father, grandfather, sister, daughter. And I think the word is very important. So the image of the word with the word made sense and complete the work. And then I made a video that is one hour long where I asked all of them to tell me about their experience. So everyone answers the same question, which is the title of the work, who is, how do you feel? When I was shooting the first person, I framed the, uh, her face. And when I look at her face through the viewfinder the camera, I say, you know what, the face is too much. If I do just talking heads, there will be people crying. And what they're saying is more important than all these emotions. So I just point the camera down and frame her hands. And then I just ask them, you know, give me some silence in the beginning and some silence at the end and say whatever you want. And that's it. So I, I did, I shot the video with 14 people because I didn't have all the ideas in the beginning of the project. So I don't have every image or every video for everyone. So after having all this material, in the, the video material, I say, right, so should now, how going to edit this? And then I understood, you know, in a support group, you're not supposed to interrupt when people are talking. So what did I do? I just, I didn't edit what they say, I just, what they said. I just used everything. I just created an order that I think that worked well. And I just had a little silence, someone saying thing, everything, a little silence. And this very raw video of talking hands, they're just the hands, they say everything. And these people saying everything from the heart, you know, we didn't have any rehearsal, they didn't know the question, we did just one take for everyone, we didn't do a second take, you know, just like, oh, that wasn't that good. No, and they didn't ask anything, everything is there. And uh, as an artist, I create videos, I like the idea of videos they are in a loop and they don't have a beginning and an ending and, and you can go there and whatever, whatever the time you give to the work, you can get it. You know? So if you, go, if you go there and you give it the video four minutes, you're going to get it. If you want to give one hour, eight minutes, so it's the total length of the film, you're going to get it. You know? And I'm always surprised how many people in the exhibition sit there and go through the whole thing. You know, they just watch the whole film and they're like, wow, there's, there's something there, you know. And I think it's the power of, of, I don't know, being really direct and honest about something that you can talk about, you know. Tell me if in talking with all these other family members who had lost a loved one and them sharing their stories of what their family members were going through, you know, emotionally, did, did doing the project give you an insight into what your father was going through that you think you didn't have before you, uh, before he had passed away? I think it gave me more insight about what's going on with myself, you know, to be honest, because I come from this very open family. So my, what happened, I think, you know, there's some people that, that had lost someone, that the people that lose someone to suicide who doesn't have a clue because people don't communicate they're depressed sometimes, you know? They go through very tough times, they don't tell anyone, they feel very lonely, they go there, 
and they take the, their own lives and people are left with this big question mark, you know? In my case, we kind of understood, I think what I really got, what, what my father was going through in the sense that he, he'd been sailing, oh, I, I might commit suicide and things like that. I think what I really got is that there wasn't anything I could have done to stop him if he really wanted to do it. Because I think the sense of guilt that comes is just like, ah, I should have gone back to Brazil, I should have done this, I should have done that, and that affected my whole family. And then you listen to people going through things like this and trying different stuff and trying and trying and trying and failing always because in the end, it's a personal choice, you know, that people take. And there's nothing, we could try locking them up, you know, I'm saying, you know, with kind of irony, you know, there's, there's nothing that actually you can do. Some people, they have to go to kind of an institution or things like that, but most of the people, they don't, you know, is that they're going to, that what happened to my auntie, she was in an institution being treated for her schizophrenia, and then still there, she was able to kill herself inside the place. So I think the idea there's nothing we could do to avoid what happened, there's a very important message, you know, people shouldn't blame, blame themselves. So I got a lot, I think, because I tried going to psychoanalysis and that didn't give, didn't give me the answers I needed, I got all the answers from the support group and from the people that I talked to, you know, sitting there, listening to them, telling their own stories, just gave me a feeling of belongingness again, you know? And that was something that I had lost, you know? I'm, I'm back here, you know, just like it, what happened to me is not unique. So I think it's more about that. I grew up in the United States, but my, my family background is um, Dominican. Mm-hmm. And uh, issues of mental health, you know, mental illness, um, are dealt with you know very differently than they are here in the, in the states, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of it is just born out of just not understanding. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, since you know you've been working on this project, your family has sort of experienced this, and and you've been living back in Brazil, and as the work has gotten out there, what have you learned in terms of how the culture in in Brazil deals with issues of depression and suicide and mental illness and and what are you hoping what are you hoping that your work does in terms of contributing to the, the greater understanding I think I think well here there's a lot of prejudice as well you know it's not uh, I think people most people don't like to talk about it they don't understand it they blame people who are depressed of being lazy, you know, of just don't wanting to do the hard work, you know, just get off the sofa and do whatever you have to do, you know, and uh, people want to give a lot of advice, you know, just like, oh, you should do this, you should do that, you know. So I think my, my aim is just, there are two things, right? One is to bring the subject to the surface. You no, know, let's talk about it. Suicide is there, it's happening. You know, depression is there. Let's talk about it. But I was able to talk more about my own experience, which is not to be depressed or not to have any suicidal feelings, but to have to deal with what happened to someone I loved, right? So I just, my first proposition is just 
to open a space for people who had gone through some kind of trauma or hard experience to access a, a way of talking about it through art. If you go to an exhibition, just to have an exhibition where there's a video that's one hour long about where people talk about having someone, losing someone to suicide, I think is already strong enough, is important thing to, to exist in the world, you know? And I'm very open about it. I always been since day one. My father committed suicide. My father took his own life. I talk about it. I listen to what people say if they come with this common sense, prejudice stuff. I say what I think. And I'm trying to be in contact with psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, and psychologists. And I'm, I give my book away, you know, and try to make it have an existence in the world, out of the art world or photography world only, you know, and see if you can replicate some kind of uh, understanding that we need to talk about it. That's it. Tomorrow I'm taking several copies to this event where I'm giving the talk to give it to people, to give it away, you know, to people. The, the book I've just published about the I'm Not Alone series is, is free. It's just... I got this bursary to have an exhibition and publish a small catalog and I managed to print a proper book and the book's for free. I just give it away to people, you know, I distribute it. Printed 1,500 copies. No, so if anyone is listening to it, I cannot afford sending it to the, to the US, but I would happily give 30, 40 copies of it. And if people can pay the shipping, I'm more ha more than happy to send it there. The book is bilingual. The book is in Eng is in Portuguese and English. Uh, I always make my books in English as well, so they can be uh, outside Brazil. You know, I think that's that's it. Hmm. What's what's been your family's reaction to the to the project? Well, they always thought I was a little bit strange. You know, just the the. <laughs> The strangest in the family as an artist always been doing things that they would look and say, oh, there's Andre doing his thing again, you know. My sister was a little bit upset, my older sister, a little bit upset in the beginning, you know, with me shooting the funeral and then doing the self-portraits. She wasn't upset with me doing something with that. She was just upset in general and saying, ah, it's too sad. You don't need to do it. It's already too much. Why are you keeping, like, dealing with this? Why... You're doing this. But my, my younger sister, she's a, she's a psychologist. She didn't say anything. My older brother is a very closed person. I think you say that in English, don't you? He's closed. He's not very, someone who is very open about his feelings. He never mentioned anything. They, all of them have the book, the first book, The Dead Suicide, and they all like the book. My mom understood what I did as well. I think, you know, as an artist, we, if we make things from the heart, you know, I wasn't trying to exploit that any, in any way, you know. I was just doing what I do. Several of my projects deal with this kind of, uh, deal with psychology. I have one series called Immigrant. There's a way of trying to understand what was for me to be an immigrant in the UK for seven years. Another one that doesn't have anything in the title, but it's called The Process, a series that I shot while I was divorcing, so deal with the, my emotions at that time. So that's part of my project, of my work as an artist. I always start for something that happened in my life or some kind of 
desire to use photography to deal with something that's not obvious that photography can deal with. I think it's almost connected sometimes with some kind of... I, I lost the, the word in English again. But I'm trying to use photography to explore and deal with these very intangible feelings, you know, or emotions. So how can photography, who is something really connected to reality, deal with all of that? So I use this very straightforward photography, direct flash, almost in a documentary style, to do something that's as far away as possible uh, from documentary photography. But then I think in the end they understood, basically. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I would... Because I'm the first uh, guest from Brazil, I will recommend a very good friend of mine from Brazil called Felipe Russo. I can, I'm probably going to spell it. Felipe is F-E-L-I-P-E and Russo is R-U-S-S-O. Felipe is someone who I met after coming back from Brazil and he's an amazing photographer uh, he does mainly seatscapes. He deals with the subject of the city and he photographs Sao Paulo a lot. And he's someone shooting with large format camera and his work is amazing. I think you, you all should see it and check it. And he has done a master's in photography in the U.S., and his work is amazing. I can, it's, it's totally different from mine and something that he has an exhibition on at the moment. And I went there and I just got so much and I had, it changed some of my understanding of photography just going on his show. Seeing that he, he did a last series on, uh, we have a lot of garage parkings or parking spaces in buildings here. I don't know. There's, in the, in the 60s in Sao Paulo, there was this idea that you could build some like buildings to just for cars, you know, and that is something that didn't work out really well, but they still exist here. And he produced a series of photographs of the inside of these buildings. It's beautiful, it's amazing, it's dark, it's strange, it's, it's, it's the past of the future, if you understand what I can, what I mean, you know, an idea that at certain time was the future of the city and now it's, really a rundown pest. I don't know if that makes any sense no, no, in English. Make, yeah, it makes sense. That's it. I, I really, I highly recommend his work. Well, Andre, thank you so much for making time for us this morning. I really appreciate you, your generosity and you sharing your work with us. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. I hope people understand my broken English. You know, it's a little bit rusty. But the last thing, I don't know when this is going on, but uh, I'm just reshaping my website and it's down at the moment, but it'll be on again until the end of this week and all the work I mentioned will be there. And if people want to write to me and exchanging ideas, my email is there and I'm more then happy to communicate and exchange ideas with people on the subjects we talked. Thanks again to Andre Penteado for joining us here at The Candid Frame. You can check out his work by visiting andrepenteado.com. 
Remember that you can and do play a big role in introducing others to the work that we do here at The Candid Frame. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution through Patreon. You can contribute amounts of $2, $5, $10 or more, or anything in between on a monthly basis and help make a big difference to the work that we're doing here at TCF. Thanks to Peter Jerkel and Lisa Cousine for their contributions to our Patreon effort. And lastly, I'm working on joining photographer and fellow podcaster Martin Bailey for his Hokkaido Winter Landscape Photography Adventure at the beginning of January, and I hope to see some of you there. You can find out more about this wonderful experience by visiting martinbaileyphotography.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.